Well, 722, uh, would you welcome to our family here tonight, Mr. William P. Young. (laughs) Known to, that's you, yeah, it's a giant you, it's a scary thought. I'm a lot taller up there. Yeah, you are. The camera adds 10 inches, it's crazy. Um, uh, Better known to your friends as Paul. This was a great debate among our staff because we received emails about WP, Willie P was one of them, Paul was one of them, and then someone Willie called the P. other... Yeah, yeah, Willie P is your, your hip-hop name, of course. Um, he's got huge street My daughter is threatening to... She's doing hip-hop abs, and I'm going, I can do that. Yeah, sure. He said, Dad, don't, no. Don't, no, don't, no. don't disgrace hip-hop by no. doing this right now. No. All right. Uh, well, we're really glad to, to have you, and especially coming out of this amazing time of singing together. I mean, Eddie and the band, so grateful for Eddie's not... Yeah, I can't see him. Where is he? Um... Just, Eddie is a part of who we are here at 722 and I think captured God's love for us through music so powerfully over these last few moments. So um, I'm a little bit of a wreck, so we'll see if we can... You may have to me interview, too. get me through this one. Um, <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah, so a, the, the, a while back, um, I had a few friends tell me about this book. You should, you know, hey, there's this book, The Shack. You should get this book called The Shack. And of course, like my standard joke was, oh, finally the biography of Shaquille O'Neal. I've been waiting for this all my life. And like, you know, I did that like three or four times. I did it every time I thought it was funny, which was none of them. But um, I, just, I, just, I just got the gender wrong. You just got, yeah, the gender wrong? Think about it. Oh, thank you. We'll get to that later. Sorry. Well, inside joke, you guys. Inside joke about Papa. Anyway, um, uh, so I had enough friends kind of tell me. And then I was in the airport. I was coming back from somewhere. And some people, enough people had said I knew nothing about the book. And I saw someone read it in the airport. And then immediately afterwards, when I went to lunch with Christian, who's one of the worship leaders around here, he began to mention to me just how much this, this book was wrecking my life, and he promised he was going to get it for me, and he never did. Um, and so finally enough people had said, hey, there's this book that you really, really need to read. And so as we kind of got into it and, and the story behind it, which is what we're going to talk about a little bit tonight, we just knew we had to somehow try and get you here to share your story and the story of the book and the story within the book um, to those of us who've gathered here tonight. So it really is an honor for us to have you here tonight. Thanks for kicking off our summer with us. My gosh. I have have a little piece of business to do. Uh, uh, Happy birthday, Char Baby, uh, from the West Coast to the East Coast, from Laura. All right, that's your shout out for the night? That's it. Okay. (laughs) Giving props to all his peeps. Uh, You are hip hop, Willie P. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Good. Well, I thought I mean, there's, a, there's a ton of stuff we're going to try and get into tonight, and we won't nearly get into all of it, and, uh, but we'll do the best we can um, with tonight. I thought it'd be cool. Yeah, it's the book if you haven't seen it. I don't it's, know seen no, it. no, no, no. It's, I have not seen this edition. Oh, you haven't seen it with the. No. With, okay, well, there it is. Check it out. Would you like a copy? We can get you a copy. We know Actually, people. Yeah. We, yeah, they're hard to get. They're really hard well, to get. This. Yeah, right, at the top. New York Times, number one New York Times bestseller. I know. That's kind of crazy. It yeah, is which absolutely is crazy. crazy. I know. Crazy. We'll get we'll we'll get to that. We'll try and we'll try and get to all. Of that. I did not even know that that was out yet. Uh, we're we're breaking it here tonight. Yeah. It drops here tonight. So that is, that is so cool. Yeah. First in the streets. Um, all right. So w- what we'd love to before we get into the story of the book is I'd love for you just to share with uh, those gathered here tonight and those watching on the web what your kind of your story. What, you, you have a kind of a, a pretty unique and powerful story that in many ways I, I think you would agree sort of led you to, in so many ways, the, the telling of this story. So why don't you tell us back, you, you didn't grow up like a normal 
kid? Where did you grow up? And Everybody grows up like a normal kid. Yeah, right. You, everyone yeah. thinks their life is normal. Yeah. Yours really wasn't, though, just so you know. Well, <laughs> it was to me. Okay. Yeah, I thought everybody grew up among cannibals, you know? Okay, you should give a little context, maybe. Oh, okay. okay. Um, I'm a missionary kid. I'm a preacher's kid. That's about as messed up as you can get. Yeah. And, uh, um, amen. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was 10 months old when we went into the highlands of uh, Netherlands, New Guinea at the time. So my, I'm Canadian. My uh, sister was born Dutch. My brother Tim was born under the United Nations auspices. And my brother Stephen was born Indonesian because the country kept changing. Wow. And uh, when we went in, we went in among uh, tribal folk. You know, they were um, uh, people who'd never seen white folk before. And... Uh, um, so I'm ten, I'm 10 months old. I'm the oldest. I'm the only child. And that's what my culture was. I grew up Adani, which is the, the tribal uh, name, for about 40,000 plus people over 100 square miles. And uh, um, it, it, was, it was normal to me. Um, they were animists, that is, they were spirit-worshipping people, um, complete with the witch doctors and the witches. and They... Uh, they were warring people, but they were family people in terms of inside their own tribal structures. Uh, and they raised me. This is back in a generation where, um, you know, parents at that time didn't know that, about baggage. They just, you know, it wasn't something that they knew about or knew what to do about if they knew about it. And uh, so they carried it with them. And, and what happens with baggage that you carry in your life is that there comes a point where it tends to fall on the weakest you know, the ones that can't fight back or um, the ones that can't put up a resistance to it. And then there's also a focus on doing God's work. And that sometimes leads to children falling between the gaps. Mm. And in my case, that happened. Mm. Uh, my dad brought some of his baggage and he was, he was a pretty hard, hard man. And he was young. I mean, he's in his 20s, so, you know, we've got to cut him some slack. He's a no training, no in terms of anthropology or cultural anything. You're dropped into the middle of a Stone Age technology, cannibalistic tribe of people. And uh, so I was disconnected from my dad. You know, boarding school became a reality at six, uh, mandatory at that time. And so I'd fly out to boarding school and four months later came back, called my mother, Aunt Betty. Her name's not Betty, but... Uh, there was a white woman taking care of the girl's dorm named Betty. And my first culture shock was going to boarding school and realizing that I wasn't black. It must have been a very harsh kind of wake-up call for you. It was a big disappointment. You really, yeah. Explains a lot of things, but... You really didn't have people close to you in your life kind of defining reality yeah. for you. So, so you know, uh, but it was. It was the first yeah. culture shock. And so the... The context was, you know, I'm disconnected from my... I was raised a Donnie. I was around the conversations that they were having about whether they were going to kill my parents or not. Because I was with them from early morning till evening. And, uh, um, and the shack is built out of that kind of disassociation. But even more than that, it's built out of sexual abuse that happened inside the tribe starting at about age four. And then it got... I mean, it was very intense. And then I went to boarding school, Christian missionary boarding school, and the first night the biggest boys came and molested us, first graders. And that just starts a whole chain of events. The shack is a, is a metaphor, you know, it's, a, it's the house of the soul, it's what you build on the inside. 
And people help you build it. A lot of times our dads help us with the foundations. That's why the house doesn't stand up very well. And, uh, and, and what people do to us helps build that inside place. And uh, uh, it's, uh, we do build a facade on the outside. You know what a facade, you know, in, in movies, if you go to a movie set and you see the facades, they're the, they're the outside buildings, but behind them there's nothing. Well, behind ours, there's the shack. You know, there's the stuff. It's the, it's the house of shame. It's the house that pain builds. It's the house of loss. It's the house of not being a child. And, uh, and that shack is filled with our, our, uh, our pain. Sometimes we have a room that we try to just lock off so that, that we don't even have to go there unless we absolutely have to. And uh, it's got rooms that have our, our uh, fears in it and, and other rooms with our lies and, and our addictions are in different rooms. And as long as we keep working on the facade, you know, trying to be, make it look good for God, right? Make it look good for other people. And we just work on that facade, that outside, and we just keep painting it over and over, and it sometimes starts to fall apart. And mm. people come knock on the door, and we don't want to let them in. Because they'll see, you know, if we let them in, they'll go into the real house, and it's mm. just a shack. Mm. And for me, the shack was, uh, I built it for 38 years. Mm. You know, the pain, I created a facade, and the facade was all about performance. Performing for God. You know, because I, I was desperate to get somebody to, to, to love me, you know. Mm. And I performed for my dad, but that never worked. And I performed for, for everybody. And, uh, you know, it's just this little tiny thin veneer mm. that covers over an ocean of shame. And you just protect it. You've got to keep that intact. Mm. Because if, if that goes away, you got nothing except the shame. Mm. And so that's the metaphor that's in the book. Yeah. That's the pain that's behind it. Yeah. I had a lady that wrote me an email and she said, you know, oh, we've gone through the deaths in our family. We know that piece too. We had a six-month period where my 18-year-old brother, the, the Indonesian, he was killed. And my mother-in-law at age 59 died suddenly and my five-year-old niece was killed the day after her fifth birthday. It was a tough six months. Mm. But this gal writes me a letter and she says, you know, I, I don't know your backstory, but my sense is that uh, Missy, the little girl in the story, represents something that was murdered in you as a child. Mm. Probably your innocence. Mm. And Mackenzie, the main character, represents the process of coming to healing. Mm. And I showed that to Kim, my wife. She just shook her head and said, she nailed it. Yeah. And she did. Yeah. And so... Uh, for you, yeah, you're going to have production people are having conniption fits right now over your mic. If you can kind of pull it up that way. Okay, thanks. Sorry, just a little housekeeping. There you go. But, but there, perfect. Okay. So for you, the, that thin veneer broke at some point for yeah. you in your life, and it really did kind of all come crashing down for you. And you, don't, you can kind of go into that to the depth that you want, but it led you ultimately to... Um, 30, 38 years in the shack. Yeah. 11 years, I mean, 38 years building, building it, it, 11 years in the shack. Yeah. You know, you can't go around the shack. We want some kind of a spirituality that, you know, God leapfrogs us from new birth to near perfection. Right. And, uh, this doesn't work that way, yeah, does it? I know. No. And, and we want to we wanna think that we don't have to deal with that. And we got verses for it. Right. You know? 
right. looking forward to what lies, you know, was ahead, leaving what lies right. behind. Forget the former things. Yeah, yeah. Right. And at some point, God respects His creation enough that He wants to heal it. Yeah, and, and that's part of the healing. And so for you, there was the the, the, the kind of it all broke out underneath you. Life fell apart, and you went yeah. into at that point. I believe is that the a part where you started going into counseling. And there's just a yeah. I don't know how much we want yeah. to get into that no, story yeah, yeah, and kind yeah, of circumvent yeah. it, but just well, you know, important stuff. Let me tell you, I don't have any secrets, and I don't sit up here. I'm sitting down there listening, and in worship, and I so I could have just stayed there the whole evening; it would have been fine with me, just being part of worship and uh, and having a conversation with Papa. And I'm going, oh, why me? Mm-hmm. You know. Why did you do this with me? Mm. You know, because all I did was I, out of my love for my six children, I wrote them a story. And, uh, you know, my, my life is just grace is what it is. It doesn't make any sense and it's not fair and all those things. Grace has never been fair. <laughs> Thank God. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm. but... Um, you know, at 38 years of age, and, and my perfectionism, I, uh, I was, uh, I was very careful and very safe. You know, when you're little like that, and uh, and you lose all your boundaries because they're just trashed, and you spend your life trying to sense the boundaries of people around you, and trying to stay safe inside those. And trying to stay away from people that don't have any themselves. Because, you know, when, when you're hurt like that, you can pick out the sick people. It's just kind of a sixth mm-hmm. sense, you know. Everything about where the doors are, where the windows are, how to get out. You can hear all the conversations at the same time. Mm. And, uh, and it's all about protecting yourself. And this little thin veneer of perfectionist performance. And I was a good performer. And uh, I climbed, you know, I was rising young superstar in the short young superstar <laughs> in, in the Christian community. And I was teaching a lot, things like that. And Kim, were, Kim was really an answer to prayer. Um, that is, I was praying and asking God to heal me. And he set a trap. And her name was Kim. Hmm. And, uh, and we, did, we did well. I mean, I adapted and she taught me everything I knew about being a father. And I did a pretty good job. And at uh, 38 years of age, after my sixth child is born, I ran into someone that had no boundaries either, and it was her best friend. And I had a three-month affair with my wife's best friend. And this is the woman that my wife then turned to for counsel. You know, she's having this separation between her and her husband, and she senses it, and she turns to her best friend to see if she might have some counsel. So the betrayal was monumental. And on January 4th, 1994, I entered the shack hmm. because I get a phone call from Kim. And she says, I know. And this little thin hmm. veneer, this facade, hmm. is blown to smithereens. It is all gone. And I have a choice. Run away. Kill myself. Or face Kim. Mm. And I was so desperate at that point to run away would have been the same thing as killing myself. Mm. 
And I went and faced Kim. And she beat the hell out of me. <laughs> for two years. I was saved by the fury of my wife. I was saved by the wrath of someone who hated everything that she knew at that point about me but wouldn't let go. And she went after me with every bit of North Dakota, Minnesota, salt of the earth, <laughs> right is right and wrong is wrong, wrath. And she really, I mean, from my side, I'm, I'm gone. I've got nothing left, see? When this was gone, all I had was all the crap. And she, I got to stay in the home because she loved my children. And she didn't want them to be without a father. And second, I broke hard. I mean, I just broke. And I said, I can't have any more secrets in my life. And it took me four days to unload all my secrets. Everything. And at the end of that four days, she said, I'll never believe another thing that comes out of your mouth the rest of your life. And the third reason that I was able to stay is I never pointed a finger at her. I never said, you know, some of this is your stuff too. At that point, it didn't matter anymore. And it never mattered again. It was my stuff that was on the table. And... Uh, began a journey. I mean, every day she would walk with her friend who kept her alive and she would scream and just talk every day while they would walk. And me, I started going to see a counselor. His name's Scott Mitchell and uh, with a group that specialized in sexual abuse. And my wife doesn't understand any of this. She's, mm -hmm. she's being introduced to a world that she never thought was there. I'd kept all of this hidden all the lies, all the addictions, all of this for all these years of our marriage, for all my whole life. And now <clears throat> I'm sitting across from Scott. And it literally took me two years, other than Scott, it took me two years to look another person in the face because the shame was so deep I couldn't lift my eyes off the ground. And uh, I sat in front of Scott and I said, Scott, I'm done. I've got nothing left. I'm at point A and I've got to get to point Z and I, I don't even know how to get to B, you know. Do you know? And I don't need anybody saying, well, Paul, how do you feel about this? <laughs> you know. <laughs> I said, I need to know that you know how to get me there. And he said, yeah, I do. It's going to take a year and a half. And I said, I'm in. And he said, well, hold on. You need to understand that everybody says that at first. But after a couple months and we're working on your stuff, you'll feel a little better about yourself. You'll feel a little bit more in control. And you'll quit. Everybody quits. Right before the really hard stuff. And I said, Scott, I promise you, I will not quit until you tell me that I'm done. And with that agreement, we began to work on our stuff. And mm. nine months later, he said, Paul, you're done. Mm. We've never had anybody stay with it and work this hard. Mm. And he understood. 
This was life or death for me. We're dismantling everything. And in the middle of that process, I lost all my hope. I got to a place where I looked into the ravine of all my crap. And I thought, there's nobody there. All there is is the junk. And uh, God intervened at that point. And uh, a friend of ours, Kenny, comes to my wife, and I don't know about this until later. But he comes to Kim and he says, Kim, you have come down from the mountain of normalcy to find out what some of us are like. You see, Kenny is a, a damaged boy too. He just didn't know how to hide it very well. And uh, he said, Paul is trying to do the best he knows how. But I think that if you hit him one more time, and that's metaphorical, of course, if you hit him one more time, you're going to kill him. And me, I'm standing on the cliff right then. And I'm looking into it, and I've lost all my hope, and I'm thinking, okay, it's going to cost how much to get to Mexico, because I don't want to kill myself in front of my kids. But I know that they're going to be better, and the whole world will be better if I'm just not here. And Kitty, another girl, comes to us, a, a gal who's our age, and, and she says, Paul, where are you right now? And I describe this, this big cliff. And I say, Kitty, you know, you know what I am? I'm just a little piece of shit, dried up. And the wind's blowing it away. And I'm terrified that when it's done, there will not be anything left. And she said, there's a seed. A seed. A seed. Something could grow. I had no idea what it was. Because I'm thinking, I've got to go back to before I'm four years old and try to figure out who I am, what's not a defense mechanism, and what's not a survival skill. But there's a seed. And I'm thinking, okay, there's a seed. I don't know what can grow, but something could grow. And, and things grow really well in this kind of crap. <laughs> and uh, all my hope came back mm -hmm. and it was the last time that I was suicidal mm -hmm. and uh, you know I started this journey and go through with Scott and Scott is, uh, is someone who becomes my friend and, and I called Kim and tell her what's going on and she's going yeah right yeah uh -huh, of course and I know she doesn't believe anything but that's okay, because it's not about her. And I just got to step through one day at a time. And what's in front of me? What's in front of me? What's in front of me today? I just got grace for one day. What's the step? What's in front of me? And I'm still telling Kim, because right from the get-go, we went public. Her dad lived with us for 17 years. He was right in the middle of this. My two oldest boys were right in the middle of this. Our community of friends were right in the middle of this. I wrote letters to all the people that I'd done ministry for. And so everybody knew. 
And I said to Kim right from the beginning, from day one, I can never have another secret in my life because they've been killing me for years and I won't. And Scott helped me through that time and Kim pushed me to deal with it all. It took 11 years that I squeezed into this weekend for Mackenzie. And that 11 years ended at the end of 2004. And in September of 2004, just to wrap a circle, just so you can understand somewhat of what we're going through here, Scott Mitchell, my friend, he's he's struggling in his family with his oldest son who's a meth addict. And uh, I don't know his family because I'm a, you know, patient-client thing. And... uh, uh, but I, but I, find out about this, and uh, his Scott has been talking to his uh, his uh, brothers in Christ that he has Bible study with and small groups with, and he's telling them, um, you know, I'm at the point where I'm I die for my son. Well, his son who loves his father, but he's a meth addict. And meth is an awful thing. You know, it destroys the serotonin in your system and you feel nothing unless you have meth because it replaces it for a short period of time. And uh, his son is just battling and there's a, there's a woman in his life who keeps dragging him back into the, the addiction. And Scott and his family set some boundaries. Well, his son went and bought a twenty-two pistol and even had it loaded. I don't know why. Maybe he was thinking about killing himself. But, but there was a confrontation between Scott and his son and this woman who showed up. And Scott finally said, you know, you just need to leave the property. And he walked into the house and shut the door and locked it. And his oldest son thought, you know, I left something in the house. And so he goes up and the door's locked. And so he takes the pistol and smashes the window, but it goes off. And he shot his father in the heart and killed him. And I, uh, at word, I'm working downtown and word comes and I can't even bear to go to the funeral. And uh, it's a really hard time. Um, in 2005, I, I write this story for my kids. And a couple months ago, I get an email from a friend. Well, not anybody I know, but in fact, it's a woman I don't know. And she says, uh, she's become a friend now. And she says, Paul, I want to tell you that the shack, your story, has had this huge impact in our family. We have a great sadness. You see, in uh, 2004, uh, my oldest son shot and killed the father he loves, Scott Mitchell. And it was signed, Connie Mitchell. And I send her an email and say, Connie, I want to talk to you. Can I have your phone number? And she gives it to me and I call her and I talk to Connie. And I say, you do know, do you understand that if it wasn't for Scott, I probably wouldn't be alive. And if it wasn't for Scott in part, the story wouldn't exist. And she said, you know, when you called, when you emailed and asked for my phone number, I said to my brother-in-law, you know, I wonder if Paul is one of Scott's boys. Hmm. And 
and the story I write, see, for my children, all of a sudden has come full circle and it's in the middle of Scott's family and the stuff that they're having to deal with. Mm. Is that the grace of God? (laughs) God is in the details. God is in everything. There are no coincidences. There's no chance. I think it would be good to... Uh, talk a little bit about how that book came about because there's a lot of stories and we could go all night as we were doing a dinner just the different stories of how this God is using this book to kind of meet people in in, in great in seasons of great sadness or in, in the middle of their lives that have carried great sadness this was not you are not a, an author I mean, <laughs> not, here's a book that no, New York not. Times bestseller but you I, never set out to be an author uh, an accidental, an author. accidental author yeah. who I'll just kind of run through some of the details just for the sake of time, and then we can get into some of the story. And correct, please correct me if I'm wrong. You uh, never set out. This is a story you wrote for your kids. Yeah. So you set out to like, I want to write a little parable for my children, and kind of encapsulate some of what I've learned in my, on this journey that you said of all these years in the shack, and then all these years of God really kind of healing you and restoring you in that place. Yeah. At the encouragement of Kim, she's the one that was saying. So your wife Kim yeah. says, right. I just want story. you to put something in yeah. one place about how you think, because you think outside the box. It's a gift for the kids. Yeah. And lately, she told me she was thinking two to four pages. <laughs> so, that's good. You exceeded her expectations. So that's good. So yeah. you read this book, and then it. it you start to realize, I guess, through, through the process, maybe there might be something more to this. Or some friends realize, hey, this is, we should maybe look into publishing this or yeah. maybe getting this out there. I, I, actually, the goal was to get it to Kinko's by Christmas. Okay. Yeah, that's the it's whole vision. a lofty vision. goal. Yeah. 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 And, which I almost succeeded. We, we almost got it to him by Christmas. I actually had it written. The first manuscript was written by the middle of August. And, uh, but we were just so tight on, on money and our family that I had to wait till a little after Christmas, but the first run of the shack was. Once you King, got your Christmas Kinko's. money, you could go down to Kinko's yep. And, yep. and spend and, it on the book. Uh, and we had 15 copies. Yep. Okay. So this is what's unbelievable: is that you there's the kind of realization that hey, maybe this there could be you know a little bit more to this than just for our kids, and so it gets sort of shopped around, I guess. To no, not yet. Um, um, my first manuscript was written. And it had the author as Mackenzie Allen Phillips, because it's That's for right. my kids, right? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so it's no big deal, except that once people started giving it to their friends, we actually had people that were wanting to fly to Portland to visit with visit Mackenzie. Mackenzie. Yeah. Which could be problematic. Yeah, that is, it's a problem. And that, and and that uh, he doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. So, so we then had to take him off the authorship, which, <laughs> which is you know, probably he's, why. He's still pretty about it. Yeah. And... Uh, so. I, I believe it. I believe it. That's well, they should be. So, so then, um, then what actually happened is I ended up sending it to the only for real author I knew, which was a friend of mine named Wayne Jacobson, okay. and uh, he actually tries to write books, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's good at it too. Yeah, he's sure. got some really good books. And, sure. But he's the only one I knew that did that, and I so I apologetically sort of sent it to him because I felt the nudge of the spirit to do that. And yeah. one thing that I've learned about the Holy Spirit is sometimes he gives you those nudges so you can learn how to hear his voice, not because he wants to do anything. Right. So that releases you from expectation, yeah. right? Right. So you, you and so I sent it very apologetically. And uh, um, he, yeah, to make a long story short, he then immediately sends it to some of his friends, two of whom were movie producers, Bobby Downs and Brad Cummings. And they immediately looked at it as a potential screenplay. So they would call Wayne and say, is, is Paul doing anything with this? Because it really impacted their lives. Right. 
And, and uh, Wayne would call me up. Are you doing anything with this? And I'd go, I don't know what to do with this. I did everything I knew to do. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and I would say, I think you're supposed to be involved to Wayne. Yeah. And he would go, no, not me. I mean, I got, I've got a whole life going. Forget it. Right. So I'd say, fine. And then Bobby would say, call Paul. Is he doing anything? And I'd go, no. So finally Wayne caved in. And Bobby and Brad and Wayne and I got together in California in the spring of 2006 and began looking at this story as, mm-hmm. a, as maybe a screenplay. And uh, that then led us into rewriting it, not rewriting it, but in the editing mm-hmm. process so that we could, um, there were some things about it that, uh, it was really beautiful to begin with, but there were parts of it that were a little too religious for me. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the language. Right. And, uh, and, uh, and they helped me. Actually, the biggest thing that they did was to help me focus the story on Mac's process, which was mine. Mm-hmm. And then, but the characters were all there already. The sequence was all there already. And, but we, we were able to craft it into something that just, out of the collaboration, and it was free collaboration, because I'm saying, I don't know how to be an author. Come on, you know? Right. So I'm not supposed to know that I'm supposed to go, don't touch my precious. You know? Right, right, right. <laughs> Right. You know, the ring of power, you know. Right. You weren't talking about your back end deal or any nah. kind of points huh. or anything. Okay. Right. I don't even know what that means. Right. And uh, <laughs> you know, I didn't write this story because I had an identity as an author or because I needed security or because uh, uh, needed to be significant. All of those things were dealt with in the shack. Okay. This book was not written as a part of a process of coming to healing. It's an expression of healing that had already been accomplished, yeah. and that's part of the beauty of it. Yeah. And so as it emerges, now we've got something that we want to um, see if we can get published. So we send it to everybody. We send it to every faith-based publisher and non-faith-based, and nobody wanted it. Nobody did. Right. And they even, the few that even responded, basically from the faith-based publishers, they said, you know, we love this book personally, but we don't have a niche for it. It's too edgy. And the non-faith guy said, we love this book personally, but we don't have a niche for it. It's got too much Jesus in it. And, uh, and so Brad and Wayne said, well, heck, you know, we've always wanted a publishing company, so they created one. With and, the, and, thus, and thus, Windblown Media was born right. with one title. One title, one author. Yeah. yeah. So it's, when somebody says Hilarious. he self-published it, technically that's not true. No. I yeah. actually have a publishing company. You do? Yeah. Uh, not me, but, you know, right. my... You're my part of a vast empire, um, yes, publishing empire. Exactly. Yeah. Well, at that point, then we have to decide, you know, how many are you going to print? And so we all... I, Brad and I borrowed money, and Wayne went into his savings, and we pooled our money for the first print run, uh, which was 10,000 copies. They shipped us 11,000 because they had some glitch in their system, and they asked us to pay for it, and we did. And they delivered them to Brad's where, uh, warehouse, which is his garage. Okay. Right. At and the offices, at the headquarters. Yeah, yeah the headquarters yeah. of his house. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and we're all working our regular jobs. I mean, I'm working three jobs at the time, and, and Brad's digging ditches, putting in people's uh, water systems, sprinkler systems, and Wayne's doing his author thing, teaching and speaking and stuff. And, um, and, and we've done all this at the same time as working. And, um, so we've got 11,000 books, you know, and... We're thinking, okay, Kim's got a big family, and you know, <laughs> yeah. we got friends. Yeah. You know, a couple of years, maybe we can get through these. And um, um, Wayne and Brad have a podcast. It's called The God Journey. It's wonderful. It's uh, conversations about outside-the-box relationship with God, and they do it once a week, 45 minutes. Well, it goes to 140-some countries, and um, 
so they'd been talking about the shack, and I'd been on the podcast and stuff like that. And, and so we had 1,000 of those 11,000 pre-sold, and, uh, which was great. So they went out poof, just immediately. And then we just waited because, you know, we don't have any marketing any money, budget. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yeah. So, Not a whole lot you can do with nothing. Exactly, yeah. 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 And um, we watched this thing happen where you have to understand, to today, this is in 2008, June, we have spent less than $300 in marketing and promotion. And it's a New York Times number one bestseller book. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. That's great. And it, of course, you know, this is because we are so brilliant. You know? Right. Your master plan. It's like, it's like right. when Barnes & Noble calls us. Because, see, nobody could get the book anywhere except the website. And we'd set up the website so that if you bought multiple copies, you'd get a discount because we don't have this retail wholesale thing going on. And, uh, and so, you know, people were going to their bookstores and saying, can I order a copy of The Shack? And they were going, there's no such book. <laughs> no. Well, it's by Windblown Media. No such company. There's no such publisher. And so, you know, all of a sudden, Amazon's wondering where in the world this book is. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you a funny story. Amazon, there is somebody who wrote a book called The Shack, and its sales went way up. That's awesome. That person owes you dinner, It's a lousy book. Yeah, well... And people would read it going, my friend recommended this <laughs> yeah. book. This changed their life? Yeah. Right. Right. So, so that, but we watched people. Those thousand people started coming back, yeah. and we were also giving it away, you know, because, you know, who knows? And uh, uh, people were coming to the website, and they were buying five, and then 10, and then 20, and then cases. And in, in four months, we'd gone through 11,000 books, and we're going, uh, okay, uh, what do we do? And so we ordered 20,000. And they delivered 22,000 because... Same glitch in their system. They need to get that fixed. I'm, I'm thinking they're going, hey, guys, this worked last time. Right. Let's you just know? add another, yeah. You know? Right. So, so we, it took us 60 days to go through 40, I mean, that 22,000, so right. we ordered 30,000. Right. So you, yeah, 30, Got 33. Okay. Yep. The math, this one's good. Okay. Good. There's a pattern here, right? Yeah, follow Well, it. Barnes & Noble's at that time... Um, Ingram's picked it up, so it's being distributed. Barnes & Noble calls us up and calls Brad and says, uh, hey, hey, we are so excited about this book. Um, uh, would you please send us your marketing and promotion plan so we can be on board? <laughs> and, and Brad says, well, if we knew what one was and we had one, we'd sure send it to you. Yeah, yeah. just send him the receipt for your $300 of marketing. Yeah, well, Brad spent that, and he didn't ask us about it. And, oh. and if he was here, he would say, I think it was 265, and he said he would tell you we got nothing for that 265 right. bucks. Right. It was some internet thing that n no never materialized anything. So it was all word of mouth that was people mm -hmm. giving it to people they cared about and having con and this had, it had happened in my own family right. with my brother and my sister and and the book suddenly was creating conversations that had never happened before, yeah. conversations about God and people were finding out that people they were in relationship with had been thinking about spiritual things, and, but those conversations never happened. Right. Or people that they knew had great sadnesses that they'd never talked about. Right. And, and this, it was just happening. Yeah. And we were sitting back, and now the publishing industry thinks you know, we're brilliant and we know exactly <laughs> what we're doing. Look, they came out with a soft cover before a hard cover. We thought that was idiocy. Right. You know? and, I mean, they did. They, yeah. We just didn't have the money for the Enough hardcover. Enough to afford the hardcover, right. And, uh, 
already and, spent your money. And plus, we were thinking, it's kind of a ripoff, you know? The whole idea is that you just try to sell as many at that, at that price as you can. Right. We have a hardcover now, but only because people say, we want it for our library. Can you please do it? So, so that's why the hardcover's out there. And um, all we wanted to do is make this story accessible, and it, and it became that. Let's, yeah, let's take a second, just in the final few minutes here, to talk about the, the story itself, because obviously there's been such a response to it. And like you said, it hasn't been through marketing or any of that stuff. It's really been relationships. It's been conversations. Someone buys a copy, reads it, buys ten more. Yeah. Uh, you know, just my mom read it and loved it and has bought it for all her friends. And so, you know, it's like every kind of little pocket, that's what you keep hearing I, about. I have uh, Jesus-following friends who have been given the book by... Unbelievers. Unbelievers, that's awesome. Yeah. This will change your life. He says, yeah. no. It's good. It's good. No, Probably will. It's kind of, needs to. It's kind of yeah. like, you know, I've been listening about the God that you believe in. You should read this you one. You should read this one, yeah. yeah. You, might, you might be into this. That's good. Yeah. Get those Christians converted. Um, just a, a few things, only because we have a few more minutes. The, 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 the kind of the gist of the story is, uh, is the main character... Mac and a great sadness. Well, that, for, for those of you who haven't read it, you obviously must. It'd be really good for you to read it. Uh, a great, yeah, thanks. A great sadness that he suffers in his life that leads him to uh, anger, you know, unrealized anger maybe at God. And, and, and the sadness is not just what happens in the right. storyline. Yeah, it goes way, way, way back, back to, to his childhood. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Similar to your similar but different from your story. Funny like, how that works. Yeah, yes. go figure. And so, in, in the process of uh, living in this about four years or so, that he would identify this one great loss in his life he's invited by god he's not sure right okay to visit the place where the greatest amount of pain is sort of represented for him correct which is this shack correct a literal shack but he receives this letter he doesn't know if it's a hoax or if it's i don't want to go into too many details no, I don't folks. okay so we'll keep it a mystery that's okay. good keep it right up here but so you do, I just want to talk just for a few minutes, because a lot of people have some questions on a few of the choices that you made. So every, every first couple chapters people are reading, they're like, okay. Well, we got, got to tell you, if you haven't read the book, um, the first five chapters are tough. Yeah, they are. They're not graphic, but they are they're very tough. wrenching. Yeah. And they're hard, especially if you have got children, it's, they're hard to get through. Yeah. And uh, I just, it does change. It does, yeah. there is resolution to a point and redemption in yeah. it, but uh, just as a warning. So he's invited by Papa to come and meet him at the shack. And it's not, you made a, a very interesting choice. You could have been about Mac's journey with God, as we understand God. But you kind of went a little bit of a different route and included the Trinity. Why don't you just describe your choice there for Mac to encounter sort of his healing journey, really in, in, in unique, different ways through each of the members of the Trinity and, yeah. and how you went about describing yeah. each of them. Now, you have to remember that, you know, I never intended to write a systematic theology. I never... This is, this is a work of fiction for right. my kids. Right. Nobody else is going to read it, so I can do pretty much anything that I want, right? And I'm dealing with some things that I want my children, and they know. I mean, my kids, six of them, they're 27 to 15, so four boys, two girls. And, and they pretty much know how I think, and, uh, but I'm trying, to, I'm trying to give them a puzzle box top. I'm trying to give them a big enough picture that when... When they get a piece of the puzzle, when somebody gives them a piece of the puzzle, they, they'll kind of know where it goes. Because I grew up where you just got pieces of the puzzle, that's all. And mm-hmm. you, you knew what color they were, but you didn't know how they went together and all this. And um, so when I'm, when I'm building the imagery, um, I'm really after doing it in such a way that my children aren't, aren't inside 
the white American God box, you know, Gandalf with an attitude, right? And, uh, <laughs> you know, because a lot of us grew up with Zeus, you know, yeah, as our God image. You know, mm-hmm. or Santa Claus, you know. Mm-hmm. He's got a list, he's checking it twice, mm-hmm. going to find out who's naughty and nice, because, you know, Santa Claus is coming to down, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and we have that image of God, is that it's all performance, and it's, uh, it's all my side, that I've got to somehow find a way to bridge my performance so it's acceptable enough to reach the love of the Father. Yeah. And, uh, and to me, none of that kind of thinking ever touched the junk in my life. It never healed me. And a lot of the unraveling during those 11 years was about who God is, and then about who I am. And the imagery that I used was outside the box. That is, I took it outside of what we normally think of in, in our imagination or even what we think Scripture presents. And uh, um, part of it is, you know, God's not male or female. God's spirit. And he's not like 51% male and 49% female, you know. 100% of maleness and 100% of femaleness are both derived from him. Mm. And the character of God... So, so if, in terms of imagery, imagery of God as a male is just as inadequate mm. as uh, imagery of God as a female, because he's spirit and... Uh, um, and you have imagery that God has built into Scripture, for example, that helps bridge our understanding. And there's male imagery and there's female imagery all over Scripture. Whole books have been written about it. So theologically, I was on very solid ground at that point. But by using the Trinity, and, and here's another thing that I didn't intend. Um, I don't know if you know who Richard Rohr is, but he's a, 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 a very great theologian who's alive today. And he sent me an email and he said, Paul... Finally, someone has taken the Trinity out of the hands of the theologians and the seminarians and given it to the common folk. Hmm. And uh, I didn't intend to do that. Remember, I'm writing it for six kids. And, uh, um, but, but what I did was, and, it, and this is the, sort of the accidental wonder of the whole thing, is when I related to the Trinity, and for me the Trinity is, has become, throughout my life, has, has become more and more important because I believe that, that God is fundamentally relational. That is, in God, there is relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that has been there forever. You cannot understand God apart from that. And because God is, has that relationship, all of a sudden, we who are made in His image begin to understand the relational nature that we have. For example, um, God has never done anything by Himself. Got it? Never. There's always been three of them. There's always been this circle of relationship. This is why you have scriptures about the Father being the Creator, the Son being the Creator, and the Holy Spirit being the Creator. God has never done anything by himself, and he, he creates us in his image. Do you think you're going to figure stuff out by yourself? You think, you know, for you to, to isolate yourself into aloneness, for you to just... Faith is a private thing, it's yeah, my own thing. Whatever. If you think you can do this by yourself, you are going contrary to the very essence of how you're created because you're created in his image. Mm-hmm. And those kinds of things really made a difference for me. And, and, I, and I look at the relationship inside that circle where it's other-centered. You know, all the fruit of the Spirit, joy and patience and gentleness and kindness and long-suffering, those are fruit of the Spirit. They existed before we showed up. You know, they were there. That's part of how the relationship within the Trinity is. 
in terms of each other. They're other-centered. They're submitting one to another. You know, some people have a little trouble with that. But, but I think it's very clear all the way through Scripture. And then this God actually submits himself to us. That's what the incarnation was. When he died on the cross, he submitted himself to human beings. Now, he worked it into his purposes, that's for sure. But God is a God who pursues us. And it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the love that's there is the life that we get invited into. And that's very different from the old paradigm where, you know, it's all about how much I can perform in order to be good enough to be in his, inside his love. And he's at a distance. And I'm over here. And I'm just trying whatever I can do to bridge the gap. Yeah. And it's all about my behavior. Right. But see what happens when you're damaged. And what happens when you're not even good at it. You just learn to hide the fact you're not good at it. And that's what most of my life was. Was hiding the fact I wasn't good so at it. So you kind of caught people a little bit off guard instead of playing to that sort of classic broken image of God as this male Zeus sort of thing. And you uh, introduced... Mac to a God who is? You want to go there? Uh, very briefly. <laughs> We're almost, if not over, time. Uh, I introduced God as a large black African-American woman. Okay. Okay. And and for a lot of great reasons. A lot of great reasons. We don't have time to even go into yeah. today. It wasn't to be controversial. No. Or to be, to fashion God no. in the image of Oprah. What do you think? Like that. I'm just saying. So, no. I, as she might do, but I don't yeah, know. You have to understand. I, you got to remember, I grew up black, okay? Right, that's right. All right. And so then the Holy Spirit, though, you didn't just kind of use the classic name. You used Papa, which is this large African-American woman. Holy Spirit takes the form of... And a somewhat ethereal Asian. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, Jesus is just himself, you know. And, uh, he didn't get an upgrade. Or, yeah, no. And, uh, yeah, and um, Sophia, who shows up, who is not part of the Trinity, but is wisdom from Proverbs chapter 8, the woman in Proverbs chapter 8, she shows up as Hispanic. So there is just this overarching moving outside the box to, to have God come to us outside yeah. of the, you know, our pet God in a box. Right. You know? And that, that I mean, please, like, if you haven't read it, you need to, and... For that, just for that reason, just to be kind of introduced to another way of experiencing um, the love of God outside the box that we've sort of created for God, which often typically has very little love in it to begin with. A uh, little bit of controversy around that and some of the other choices in the book, and some people have, uh, you know... It's great. A, controversy is great. Yeah. So some folks have, and we've actually, this has been great, because when we said that we were bringing you in, immediately got emails from a lot of people saying, oh, this is awesome, I can't wait to bring my whole small group, bring all my friends, or this friend I wanted to bring to church, we're bringing them, because you know, they've read the book, and they will never go to church, but they'll come to hear Paul talk about the book. And then we also got other people saying, I can't believe you know, that you're going to bring this person in, or you know, do you know what, they, what he's written, and blah, blah, blah. And so it's opened up actually some really interesting conversations for me and some folks who are part of 722 to really start a dialogue of, well, let's really kind of explore this and what do we, you know, let's keep in mind that this is a piece yeah. of fiction. Yeah. And so what would just real quickly, like there's been some controversy or a vocal minority that has kind of come out against the book and tried to say, hey, this is heresy or this is whatever. How do you handle that for someone who's been free with this whole thing going, eh, that's for my kids, I'm supposed to go to Kinko's and now it's, you know, yeah. number one. And then you have people attacking and saying, oh, we've got to stop this guy before he goes to Kinko's again. You know, or, <laughs> what, 
How do you personally handle that, given the journey that you've been on of healing with God, and write it out of a place of healing, yeah. and yet feeling attacked for something you're like, wow, this, is, this was never my intention? Well, you know, they don't know me, so they're not attacking me. Yeah. They're attacking an idea. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know what? In the family of God, we've got to have a place where we can bring our stuff. It yeah. doesn't matter what it is. Diversity or differences. You know? yeah. And whether it's our idea of theology or doctrine or whatever, it's got to be okay. And people bring what they've got. Right. And it raises a conversation that is great. I don't... Um, uh, see, I don't feel a lot of ownership in this. It, when, when I gave it to my kids, the book did everything that I wanted it to do. Mm. And all of this is not my deal. Yeah. You know, My favorite quote, and I, and I love this, it's from Tyson, who just graduated from Oregon State. And uh, he said to my 20-year-old daughter, Amy, he says, Amy, this book is so far beyond your dad. You know? <laughs> That's good. A little backhanded comment you know? No, it's great. Yeah. It's great because... You know, I'm writing a story for my kids, and I, and I, it was an answer to a prayer, and I didn't know it was at the time. And my prayer was in 2005. You've got to remember, I'm just coming out of the shack, right? And at that point, I'm the freest man that I know. Mm. And uh, I don't have any addictions left, and that includes addictions like pleasing my dad, mm. like doing something great for God, mm. like being significant, uh, making my mark, you know, any of those, you know, as well as the crappy ones. But um, I don't have any addictions. I don't have any secrets. Uh, I, therefore, I don't have any skeletons. Therefore, I don't have any reputation, <laughs> you know, because it all got destroyed with the secrets. But, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, um, I'm coming out of the shack, and, and my prayer is, Papa, I, I will never ask you again to do anything, to bless anything that I do. Ever. And I won't, because I am done. I am so done asking God to follow me. <laughs> you know, follow me. I got this great idea for you. You know, <laughs> I got this great business because it's really about you. And you know, mm. it's not about the fact that I'm freaking out about financial security. You know, mm. it's really for you. If I, if, I, if you really bless me over here, then you know, I'll give you a piece. I'll cut you a deal. Yeah, yeah. cut you a deal. Um, and I'm done. I'm done with that. I am done asking God to follow me. And I'm saying, I'll never ask you again to bless anything that I do. But if you've got something that you're blessing, and it would be okay for me to hang around, I'd be so all over that. And I don't care if I'm cleaning the toilet, and I don't care if I'm shining shoes or holding the door. I just want to be around you. Because, you know what? All that legalism and that performance stuff, it never touched where I hurt. It just gave me paint to paint the facade. Mm. And this, he, when he crawled inside my stuff, you know, when I went to the door of the shack and I reached for the knob, you know, I had nothing left. Mm. And he'd been inside the shack the whole time Mm. and I needed him to come flying through that door and grab me in his arms and swing me around and say, I've been waiting for you. Mm. And he did that. Mm. And I, all I want is to be his child. See, I, wasn't a, I never was a child, mm. you know? But I am now. Mm. And I'm not going back to being an adult anytime soon, I'll tell you that. <laughs> 
wish we had more time. Uh, mm. I wish we had more time. And I uh, thank you so much. The the thing it was, uh, I think that I'm just most um, grateful for in the very short time we've known each other now is that I, I can tell you from you know the few hours that I've been able to help Paul, but have talked with those who know you and have hung out with you that this really isn't something you're selling. This is freedom that you're living in, and this is wholeness that you're living in. And uh, we thank you for that. And this book is just like you said, something that God's blessing on the top. So. I yeah, I would love, if you could just read this and then um, we're going to, th- you know, just pray yeah, and move on, yeah. I get 50 to 100 emails like this a day. Part of the question was, how do you handle the controversy? You know, I, I like to say, you know, just please call me. I can tell you a lot worse stuff than you're coming up with, you know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but but I, I get, and by the way, I don't have secrets. And Kim's good with that. Last, last summer, we're sitting around in a circle of friends, and everybody knows me, you know. They know my stuff. And Kim says in front of them, in front of me, says to them, I never thought I would ever say this in my life. But it was all worth it. And she's not talking about the book. She's not talking about any of that stuff. And she's not trying to validate the pain and the betrayal and all that kind of crap. She's saying, this man is worth it. Mm. And that's grace. Mm. That's grace. Mm. And I get get 50 to 100 of these a day. And one of these, I don't care. You can pile up all the controversy and all the criticisms you want. It doesn't hold a candle to this. Dear Sir, I've never written to an author before, never felt the need. That's changed. Your book, The Shack, so inspired my son, from whom I've been estranged for over 40-plus years, to undertake a spiritual quest that led him from Atlanta, Georgia. You might even be here tonight to Oak Grove, Oregon, via motorcycle for a short visit of several hours. His email to me was totally unexpected and brief. The last sentence was, quote, I will be there within the next week bearing a great gift, unquote. The gift was a dog-eared, much-read copy of the shack. Behind the front cover of the book, he made several notes of importance and addressed them to Father. The one that had the greatest significance to me reads, Quote, there is healing in giving and receiving forgiveness, unquote. So we did that and much, much more. To the praise of his glory, in the body of Christ, there are no pedestals because we all know that apart from him, we can do nothing. This is all grace, every breath of it. And you still live it out one day at a time. Amen. Amen. We thank Paul for being with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Um, we're going to end this time, so you can kind of just stay with us right now. We're going to end this time by coming back to the heart of the Father and gathering around truth that we know, uh, maybe that we need to hear, we need to know, we need to believe. And I think one of the most important things we talked about, as you heard Paul share very freely tonight, is about what happens when we bring our great sadness or our uh, great pain or our great loss, that instead of trying to hide that or outperform that or perfect that, we bring that to a loving God and we are changed. We are changed. And all the performance and all the hiding and all that kind of stuff just becomes worthless. And so our hope and our prayer as a team uh, for you gathered here tonight for 722, for those of you who are guests who are coming in, is that God would stir up the courage in you to encounter his grace. Wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, you may be, as Paul said, you know, 30, 40 years into building a shack. You may have, this spiritual stuff is all kind of new to you. You're dragged here by a friend. We are praying for the courage for you to face God's amazing grace. And in so doing, be changed and wrecked and torn open and built anew, built rightly into who God desires you to be. That's our hope. And tonight, afterwards, we have friends that we love and trust we call them the ministry team. They're just folks that would love to pray with you. And if you don't have the words, you know, they'll pray for you. And we would hope that maybe if there's stuff that God is stirring up, and it may be some deep, painful stuff, that you would have the courage tonight to begin that journey. It is not all going to happen in an hour and a half on a Tuesday night. But maybe, just maybe by God's grace, it could start. It could start tonight. And you could see and live the freedom that we see Uh, This guy, this incredible guy living out of with his everyday life. So I want to pray for us towards that end. And then uh, Eddie's going to lead us and and then I'll just come out and kind of give you a last little detail. Papa, Father God, Jesus, God's only beloved Son, Holy Spirit who lives and breathes and moves. We come to you without, uh, without words but with our lives. We don't want to hide behind words. We just want to bring our lives. I want to bring my life fully open to you. And I thank you for the way your loving hand has torn this guy's life open. And the process is tearing open the hearts of so many people around the world. And God, it's happening in this room tonight too. It's not about what Paul Young has written. God, it's about what you wrote into creation. When you had this amazing idea of not only creating us, but redeeming us from ourselves, from our sin through your Son and the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. And tonight we pray that that would happen, that nothing less than that would happen, that we would find ourselves torn apart, but have the hope to cling to you, to trust in you, to come to you, and the courage, God, to be found in your grace. God, I pray for wherever we're at, that you would be initiating and continuing for some and completing for others that process. In your presence, we pray. Amen.